I hope you kept your place in Jeremiah. Uh, if you if you're still there, simply turn to the very next book. You'll find yourself in the book of Lamentations. Lamentations immediately follows Jeremiah and is just prior to the book of Ezekiel, sort of wedged in there between those two great prophets. We'll be looking this morning at various passages throughout the book, and Lord willing, end up focusing our attention in chapter 3. It's been about a month ago, uh, about a month now, since a small group of us here went down to Lakeshore, Mississippi to help with rebuilding efforts. I knew prior to going that nearly every home in the area had been destroyed or severely damaged. I had expected, I think, to be somewhat overwhelmed by a sense of destruction, emotionally struck by the devastation. However, as we drove into the Lakeshore area, I was surprised by how few heaps of rubble or debris that I saw. It had been about 20 months ago now um, since the storm had come through and things had pretty well been cleaned up by this time. What I saw were overgrown fields, many of them simply with a concrete slab sitting amongst the weeds, the only remains of what used to be someone's house. I believe it was um, Jeff who was riding with me, and, uh, and I remember commenting to him that it was impossible for me to even begin to grasp the extent of the devastation because I had absolutely nothing to compare it to. I wasn't able to adequately process the destruction without having seen the before now, I didn't, but if I had stopped the car, gotten out, walked across one of those fields, and stood on the ruins of one of those concrete slabs, there would have probably been little, if any, emotional response. Whatever happened there had not personally affected me. Now, I would imagine, though, that if the man who once lived in that house and also lost his entire family in the storm, if he stood on that same spot and reflected, his response would have been altogether different because he could have recalled to you what life used to be like. He could have described the house to you. He could have pointed out where the front door used to be. He could have told you where his little girl had just learned how to crawl. Or where his wife used to sit in the chair every evening and read a book. Or where he and his son would throw the football in the backyard. But now all of that was gone. All that's left is a concrete slab. Now that's hypothetical, but it's not an uncommon story. And it gets my point across. You see the difference. Whereas I could have stood there without any emotional response. That man probably could not. It's very likely that he would weep. I would. Because for him, standing there would bring up memories of what life used to be like. It would trigger his emotions. That man has known loss. He knows what once was and is no more. And that sense of loss would grieve him. You see what I'm getting at. The feeling of loss, the feeling of suffering... Those are devastating feelings. And God's great mercy owing absolutely nothing to me. I have personally faced very little loss up to this point in my life. And so it almost seems hypocritical of me to speak to this passage this morning. But part of what I think has driven me to this passage 
although is that although I have personally been spared from much heartache, God has very often brought me into contact with someone who has faced tremendous loss of one form or another. And it is always difficult to know how to respond. I have dear loved ones who suffer more every day than I have known in all my life. Many of you know what it is to face loss as well. You know what it is to lose a loved one who was very dear to you. You know what it is to have lost your possessions in a fire or valuables in a theft. Some of you have known the loss of stability when you found out you no longer had a job. Some of you have faced or still do face loss of strength or mobility or health because of sickness or injury. Or if you haven't experienced these yourself, you have loved ones who struggle. And you know what it is to suffer alongside them. Or I dare say that some of you, perhaps even myself, will very soon, if not within the next few hours, days, weeks, months, or years, face tremendous loss ourselves. And that's not being cynical. It's being realistic because we live in a fallen and a broken world. And suffering and loss are realities that we all face. This was the reality that the writer of Lamentations dealt with. And I believe that this book contains a message that is very relevant to us. Because regardless of place or time in history, we can all relate to a sense of loss or suffering. Some Obviously much more than others, but all of us in some degree. From our vantage point, loss, suffering, grief, hardship, you pick the word. All of these tend to lead us to ask difficult questions. We can try to suppress our feelings or forget about it all, but our mind will eventually lead us to the inevitable. So we ask ourselves or we ask others or we simply cry out to God, why has this happened? Could I have done anything about it to prevent it? Well, now that it has happened and the pages cannot be turned back, how am I to go on living? Or will life ever seem normal again? How we answer those types of questions, the response we come up with, the conclusion we end on, these will, in in some sense, largely determine our ability to pick up the pieces and move on. These five chapters in Lamentations are in reality five poems. To be specific, they are laments or funeral dirges. They are poetic descriptions and responses to loss and grief, to severe devastation and suffering. Many people think that Jeremiah is the poet who penned these verses, but no author is named in the text. If you're familiar with Jeremiah, with his works, you will likely see much similarity. But whether it was Jeremiah or whether it was someone else, one thing is for certain. The poet himself had been personally involved in the loss. And like the man in my story earlier who stood on the ruins of his own house, the poet of Lamentations had experienced loss firsthand. And so he writes in chapter 3, verse 1, I am the man who has seen affliction. 
the heart of my message this morning will take us to chapter 3. And the reason I have chosen to focus there is because both in content and structure, that is where the book leads us. Content-wise, that's where resolution is found. And in regard to structure, you'll notice that chapters 1, 2, 4, and 5 all have 22 verses. Chapters 1, 2, and 4 are acrostics, each beginning with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Chapter 5 isn't an acrostic, but it still has 22 verses. And yet, when you turn to chapter 3, it has 66 verses. And it is written uh, in a complex triple acrostic. Verses 1, 2, 3, beginning with the Hebrew A, 4, 5, and 6, B, and so forth. This makes chapter 3 stand out as the centerpiece of the book. Now that may sound odd to us because we're, we're ready to find the conclusion and the main point at the end. But in this type of Hebrew poetry, the main point and the conclusion are at the center. The significance of all of this technical jumbo is to realize that these are not just quick, simplistic, emotionally laced responses written in the spur of the moment. No, no. They are highly artistic poems. And that doesn't make them superficial either. It points to the fact that they are well thought out, well reasoned, well articulated. And most importantly, they're God inspired. So we're headed towards chapter 3, but we cannot just simply begin there. We need to first back up and get the big picture to understand what is it that the poet is lamenting? What is his affliction? Our scripture readings, both last week and this week, uh, have been in Jeremiah. And they've had similar messages. Both passages call for repentance and warn that God was surely going to bring destruction upon Jerusalem and Judah. And as we open to the book of Lamentations, in chapter 1-1, we read, How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become, she who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. Lamentations was written in response to the destruction and fall of Jerusalem. God had promised that it would come. It did. And when it did, the people of Jerusalem and Judah faced tremendous losses. Lamentations is the response to that loss. Jerusalem was the capital city of Judah. It contained the temple of God. It contained the palace. It was home to priests and prophets. The king, rich and poor, filled the city. Travelers came to the city for religious reasons and for commerce. The poet can remember these things well. He can picture the before. But now, as he stands on the ruins, he sees a very different city. The loss has been devastating. And so in chapter 1, the poet laments the city's fall and its current state. For time's sake, I won't read it, but you can go back later and read the account in Second Kings 25. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had besieged the city. He had cut off all supplies. Jerusalem was able to withstand for two and a half years, but the food eventually gave out. The wall was eventually breached, and King Zedekiah and his army fled. They were caught not too far from the city. And before his very eyes, his, the king's sons were killed. And then, so that this would be the, the last image in his mind, his eyes were put out. Zedekiah was put in chains and he was taken to Babylon as a trophy of war. 
Within a month, the captain of the guard came back and set fire to all of Jerusalem. The temple, the palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem burned. All the people, with the exception of some of the poorest in the land, were taken off into exile to Babylon. Perhaps one of the clearest pictures of the loss and the destruction during the siege is found in chapter 4. Turn there with me if you would. Chapter 4. We'll read verses 1 through 10 quickly without very many comments so that we can move on. But notice that no one was spared, whether young or old or male or female, poor or rich, all suffered loss. Chapter 4, verse 1. How the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold is changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion worth their weight in fine gold. How they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hand. Even jackals offer the breast, they nurse their young. But the daughter of my people has become cruel, like the ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives to them. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, and no hands were wrung for her. Her princes were whiter than snow, purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. Now their face is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as wood. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger, who wasted away, pierced by lack of the fruits of the field. And then perhaps the most gruesome description of all, the famine so bad that they resulted to cannibalism, in the hands of compassionate women. Compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. Or in chapter 5, chapter 5, the poet ends in a prayer. We recent read in verses 1 through 15, his pleas to God, recounting the suffering that they're going through. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We are given no rest. We have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get enough bread. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. Slaves rule over us, and there is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is as hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. Women are raped in Zion, young women in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung up by their hands with no respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill, and boys stagger under loads of wood. The old men have left the city gate, the young men their music. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. These people in Jerusalem had faced great suffering and horrible loss. Now you may initially think, I certainly did, 
Well, that type of loss, this loss here, is very different from the loss that I face because that, that was judgment from God. And it was on a large scale. It was nationwide punishment. And that's true. Lamentations takes us down a specific path. It is a specific response to a specific situation. But I believe it's relevant. Consider this. The poems were the work of one individual responding to the suffering of the people and to his own suffering. No matter how large scale or small scale the suffering, the loss is always felt at the individual level. It is always personal. So whether we're talking about your personal struggle over a miscarriage or a loss of a job, or the suffering of thousands in Mississippi and Louisiana because of a hurricane, the loss is always felt by individuals and it must be dealt with on an individual basis. Lamentations gives hope for the individual. And so I would argue that its message is relevant. And as to the fact that suffering and lamentations was because of sin and your suffering is undeserved, how do you know that? What if God has let you suffer to show you that you do not have it all together? That there is sin that you need to repent of? Or perhaps you have set your hope and your trust in your possessions or your job or your own health or your own strength, your spouse or your children, instead of trusting God. And God has, for that reason, removed one of these idols and let you suffer immensely as a result. Would not your trusting in other things have been sin? Or would we, at any time for that matter, be justified telling God that our loss or suffering is not deserved when we daily sin against His majesty? Now hear me. That's not to say that all loss is punishment for specific sin. The book of Job shatters that notion God calls Job upright and still allows him to suffer greatly, which makes us realize up front that there may be hundreds of reasons why God allows suffering to happen and any attempt on our part or anyone else for that matter to offer a single explanation as to why suffering is happening would probably earn a quick rebuke from God. Much like Job's three friends were rebuked when they tried to tell Job that his horrible sin Our suffering had been the result of a horrible sin in his life. They were wrong. We also should probably be very, very hesitant to point the finger. My point again is that Lamentations is relevant to all of us because we all are sinners too. God's Word is living and active. And this this book, as much as any other, speaks to us as well. So my ambition this morning as we open up chapter 3, and I know that was a long introduction, um, we'll, we'll move into the text now. My ambition is to show you how the writer of Lamentations responds. After he asks the questions, where does he end up? And the short answer is that Lamentations drives us to God. In an authentic wrestling with grief, it points us to see all of life, the good and the bad, in light of God. 
and to see God as both just and righteous in His punishment of sin and to see Him as faithful and loving and compassionate toward His people who trust and seek Him. This is the only solution that will provide any degree of lasting hope or understanding as we all struggle to deal with loss. So let's consider the poet's response and seek to draw out principles for our own lives. Turn with me to chapter 3 and notice, first of all, that we must recognize God's sovereignty in our circumstances. And what I mean by sovereignty uh, is to say that by sovereign, I mean that God is controlling and even causing these things to happen, even loss and sorrow. The poet recognizes this, that what he has experienced and what the people have experienced has been God's doing. These hardships and losses had come about because God had caused and enabled them to come about. Listen to the way he describes it in verses 1 through 16. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven me and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, He shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent His bow and set me as a target for His arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of His quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of all their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with the wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel. He has made me cower in ashes. There are many people who are not comfortable talking about God causing suffering. And though it's hard to understand, it is the undeniable fact that we are driven to as we read Lamentations. It was God who brought the Babylonian army into Jerusalem. Granted, it was also, at the same time, the willful, sinful acts of the Babylonians as they brought devastation upon the city. But it was also, at the same time, God's doing. Some wish to rescue God from this kind of talk. Because they're okay talking about God controlling good things, bringing good providences into our lives, but they don't want to attribute to Him any type of human suffering or hardship. So they say to you, in your suffering, God had no part in this. But they forfeit any hope, because what they inevitably end up with is a God who is not really in control at all. He is nothing more than an innocent bystander watching Satan mercilessly trample his dear world. But the Bible shatters that notion time and time again because God controls all things, good or evil. Look at verses 37 and 38. Chapter 3, 37 and 38. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? This is the conclusion he comes to. If it has happened, 
It's because God has commanded it to happen. And God, because God decrees them both, both good and bad. Or speaking specifically of the destruction that has come upon Jerusalem. Look back in chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 8. There we read that the Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall and wall to lament. They languished together. We get the description here of God stretching out a measuring line as if with the same precision he had stretched out the measuring tape and made markings to, to build something. With that sort of precision he has determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. Or in verse 17 of chapter 2. Again, the Lord has done what He purposed. He has carried out His word, which He commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. God has purposed and determined to destroy Jerusalem. And He did it. Job comes to the same conclusion in Job, in the book of Job, chapter 2, verse 10. Just after losing all his possessions and finding out that his ten children were all dead and being struck himself with boils from head to toe, his wife tells him to curse God and die. But his response to her is this, Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? Well, perhaps, perhaps Job was wrong. No, because in the very next verse, we read that in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. He spoke the truth. The undeniable yet often difficult truth is that God controls and causes both the good and the bad. And here in Lamentations, the poet recognizes that right up front. Beloved, in our own suffering and loss, we must recognize this too. But beware, because sometimes in our discussions about God's sovereignty and the problem of suffering, we're tempted to run to false conclusions. So I have two warnings to share. And you'll notice that back in chapter 3, the poet doesn't fall into either of these errors. First, beware of using this truth, uh, uh, this truth about God's sovereignty to attribute injustice to God. God's ways are always just. In embracing this truth about God, that God had brought the suffering, the poet does not in any way attribute injustice to God. He recognized that whatever has happened to him or to anyone else was deserved because of sin. So he vindicates God's justice and righteousness. Now undeniably, strong language is used in chapter 3. He feels as though he's been walled in. He feels as though God has been to him a bear or a lion waiting for him to devour him as a prey. He feels as though God has used him to be target practice for his arrows. And taken in isolation, these verses almost appear to show God as relentless and a merciless enemy. But set in context with the rest of Lamentations, you recognize here that the poet is simply describing his feelings because he knows that God has just and that any hardship has fallen on the city. It has been deserved. Consider only a few verses elsewhere. In chapter 1, verse 5, 
describing what has happened in verses 1 through 4. He says, these things have happened because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Or turn to verse 18 in chapter 1. All of these things happen. And here, Jerusalem speaks um, personified. The city speaks for herself and she says, the Lord is in the right. He's in the right. For I have rebelled against His word. Two more verses. Look to chapter 5 on the other end of the book. Chapter 5, verse 7. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. He's talking about the suffering he's in right now. But unless you think that he's just simply passing the buck here, look down to verse 16 and you see that he attributes this to himself as well. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. The poet knew that God had done this, and he also knew the reason why. God was not unjust. This ought to serve as a reminder and a warning to us just how seriously God takes sin. His justice demands that He punish sin. All sin. The other word of warning is to beware of using this truth about God's sovereignty as a crutch for embracing a fatalistic or cold-hearted view of life. Expressions of grief are not wrong. Sometimes those of us who embrace the doctrine of God's sovereignty, look at loss or a situation, whether in their own life or in the lives of someone else, and then coldly, stoically, without any emotion at all, sit back and say, I guess that's just the way it is. Deal with it. And I think there's a, a degree of truth to that, of course, because it, it shows submission. But I think it's also a perversion of the truth. It's twisted. Because the sovereignty of God is not meant to drive us to fatalism or to cold-heartedness. We seem to have this false notion that any degree of emotional response is sinful, that we should just simply shut up and accept God's terms. The problem with that is that it's not biblical. Read the Psalms as David often struggles with God, questioning why things are happening. Oh, remember, Jesus himself wept when his friend Lazarus died. Paul tells us in in Romans chapter 8 that the creation itself groans under the weight of suffering. And should we not also weep when we are forced to face the reality of sin and its consequences in this fallen world? Yes. Yes, we should. Or look here in the book of Lamentations because the poet does not coldly embrace these things. I mean, yes, he recognizes that it has come from God, but also God has given him emotions, and when he faced or witnessed loss, it grieved him. Look in chapter 3 at verse 49. My eyes will flow without ceasing and without respite until the Lord looks. I'm sorry, until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. My eyes cause me grief at the fate of all the daughters of my city. Or back in chapter 2, verse 11. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out on the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. He weeps. Or even more than that, look in 
Look in chapter 2, verse 20. He questions God. Look, O Lord, and see. With whom have you dealt thus? God, are you watching? Do you see what's happening? Should this be happening? And I don't think he was wrong. Expressions of grief are simply a part of the natural response against sin and its consequences. And it is neither God-honoring or beneficial to suppress them. So we must recognize first God's sovereignty in in all of our circumstances, even in loss or suffering, without attributing injustice or without becoming fatalistic. But then secondly, we must recognize that hopelessness, hopelessness is the inevitable result of looking for an earthly solution. We see this in verses 17 through 20. We will not find an earthly solution. In verses 1 through 16, the poet labors to describe his perception of his circumstances. He is desperate under the weight of his despair. And he is here. Here he has hit bottom. He goes on to say in verse 17, My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. Remember, or I remember, my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. He concludes in 17 that he has no peace. He has forgotten what happiness is. From his perspective, the loss has been so tremendous, he doesn't have the strength to go on. He has no more endurance. There is no hope. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever been so struck by grief that you despaired of life that it would have simply at that point to just, to just give in and die? God, I can't go on. For some reason, when we feel that way, there's a tendency to start looking around us for a solution. And it's a difficult lesson to learn because we won't find any solutions on earth. If we dwell on the loss itself, we will never be able to move beyond it. It's exactly what the poet does in verses 19 through 20. He remembers his affliction. In his soul, the depths of his being, he remembers it. He feels it. He relives it again and again. And it simply continues to bow him down or crush him, humble him. It's impossible to rise above it. It's kind of like, here's a silly illustration. It's kind of like a little boy who has high hopes of playing outside. So he goes upstairs and he gets all ready. And then he comes out and he realizes that it's raining. So he quickly runs to his room. He closes the blinds and he cries all day long. Never mind the fact that the rain quickly stopped, that the sun came out and dried up all the grass. The child is still in his room, and in his mind, he is rehearsing the fact that it's raining and that he can't go outside. And so he continues to cry all day long. You see my point. If we focus on the loss itself, we'll never escape the feeling of hopelessness. Not only that, but if we look to ourselves, 
we will only be further disappointed. Notice in verses 17 and 18, back up. Notice the emphasis on himself. He's, he's turned inward here. He's focused on the peace that he no longer has. He's focused, focused on the happiness that he has forgotten. He's focused on the endurance he once had. He is so consumed with himself and his situation that even his hope from God seems to have perished. Moving on, we must also remember that if we look to others, we will eventually be let down. And you know that simply from, some, from living. We don't see this right here in these particular verses. And I don't know if the poet uh, faced this struggle at this particular point. But elsewhere he comments on it. And he recognizes the vanity of looking for others. Looking to others for help. Look in chapter 4 verse 17. Here he speaks on behalf of the people. And he says, Our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watched for a nation which could not save. The historical recordings in Second Kings and Second Chronicles tell us that during the siege, Judah had sought the help of Egypt to fight against Babylon and defeat them. But Egypt let them down. And on an individual basis, they, they hoped that the king would save them. Look in verse 20 of chapter 4. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits. King Zedekiah was captured, of whom we said, under his shadow, we shall live among the nations. When things seem overwhelmingly hopeless, neither you nor anyone else has the ability to lift you from the depths of despair. And until you recognize that, you will, you will forever remain hopeless. Going back to chapter 3, I'm not sure how long the prophet remained in this state of hopelessness. But it would have no doubt continued on had he not finally discovered what he tells us in verse 21. Thirdly, we must recognize that hope is only found when we view the sovereignty of God and the hopelessness of our situation in light of God's character and God's purposes. We've already stated the fact that God is sovereign in these circumstances and lamentations and in our own circumstances as well. And this truth about God does give us some degree of hope because after all, we know that if it is God who is in control of bringing the suffering and it was He was mighty enough to bring it, He is also mighty enough to end it. But a sovereign God has the potential of being a terrifying thing if He's not also a good God. If God were sovereign but not good, He may take pleasure in our pain. We would simply be puppets in his big game of life. But thanks be to God, he is also good. Look at verses 21 through 24, because this is what turns the poet from hopelessness to hope. He says, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. 
The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. Hope is found when we consciously, consciously call to mind the character of God. His steadfast love. His unending mercy. His great faithfulness. Now these truths were not new thoughts. It was something that he had known mentally and forgotten because in verse 21 he says he recalls these to mind. He remembers these. Where did he get them from? Where, where did he remember them from? This statement here is very reminiscent of what God had revealed about himself in Exodus chapter 34 verse 6. There, after having given the law to Moses, we read, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And here's an important application because the poet calls to mind the Scriptures. He falls back on God's Word for hope because of what they reveal to him about God. This is why it is so very important for us to have a solid grasp of the truths of Scriptures. In the depths of despair, these are the lifesavers that keep us floating. For the poet and others who had survived the fall of Jerusalem, their greatest perceived loss was that God had altogether rejected His people. That's how the book ends, in, in a prayer. He says, Restore us to Yourself, O Lord, unless You have utterly rejected us and You remain exceedingly angry with us. From their perspective, God was no longer approachable. The temple and every other prescribed access to Him were gone. They recognized their sinfulness, but there was no priest to make sacrifices. There was no altar. There was no king. No more throne of David. It seemed that God had revoked His promise that David's throne would never cease. God had given them the land as an inheritance and now that too had been stripped. It seemed as though they had absolutely nothing left. But here the poet comes to the amazing conclusion that though, although everything around him had changed and was uncertain, God Himself had not changed. When God gave the land, the promises, the kingdom, the temple, He was at that time loving, merciful, and faithful. And despite the fact that all of those things were now gone, and God had justly punished the people, God Himself was still loving, merciful, and faithful. He recalls God. And not only does he recall these wonderful truths of God's character, he takes them to their inevitable conclusion. Because if God is loving and merciful and faithful, then his purposes are likewise loving, merciful, and faithful. And so we see secondly that we should remember that God's purposes are based upon his character. They also are loving, merciful, and faithful. And this is where the rubber hits the road. Because, beloved, when you are in the grips of despair, it is then 
that you must consciously remember that God in His steadfast love and His endless mercy and His great faithfulness intends good for you. He intends good for you. God always has good purposes for the believer. He does not intend for your pain to last forever. Look at verses 31 through 33. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though He cause grief, He will have compassion according to the abundance of His steadfast love. For He does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. Grief will not last forever. God promises compassion in the end. The timing is not definite. But in the end, compassion will come. And in all of this, no matter how long it lasts, God has a purpose. I think that's what it means in verse 33 when it says that He does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. That is, He isn't arbitrary. He isn't being capricious in it. He has a purpose in it, in all things. even brings evil and uses evil for His good purposes. But notice, I said that God always has good purposes for the believer. Verse 31 follows up the thought in verse 25. And go back to 25 because there's an important qualification to see there. These precious promises are only for the believer. Verse 25, The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. These are descriptions of a believer. Do these thoughts remind you of, of any other verse? Turn with me, if you would, in closing here. To Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 in the New Testament. Verse 28. So that I, so that I can show you that, that this is not just an isolated promise. Because here, in a, in a passage that also speaks about suffering, the Apostle Paul comes to the same conclusion. We often quote 8.28. It says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. They are working out for our good, but again, the promise is limited to those who seek God or love God. The problem is that no one naturally seeks or loves God. And so we, just like Jerusalem, justly deserve God's punishment. Ah, ah. But here is the greatest hope of all. Because in God's great and mysterious purposes for the Christian, God's love and God's mercy that we have just been speaking about have satisfied God's justice for sin on their behalf. Beloved, if in your grief you ever begin to doubt God's purposes in your life, look to the cross as a reminder of His love and mercy. For there, Christ bore your punishment. Because you realize, beloved, that your greatest need, no matter how horrific your pain and grief, your greatest need above all else is not relief. It's forgiveness. And for the Christian, God has forgiven you. Christ in His death 
burial, and resurrection has paid the price for your sin. He has taken your wrath. The mercy and the love of God has satisfied the just wrath of God on your behalf. And you embrace the promise such as that in Romans 8.32 which says that He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? But for the unbeliever who rejects Christ, he has rejected everything else too. For the unbeliever plagued with suffering and loss, there is no hope. Only a fearful expectation of the judgment to come because the just wrath of God is hanging over their head. They will simply pass from suffering and agony in this life to suffering and agony infinitely worse in eternity. Isaiah 48.22 is clear. There is no peace for the wicked. But that's not to say that just because a person is a Christian, they will no longer suffer. Not at all. Christians suffer just the same. But the believer has hope. Just like in Lamentations. The believer has hope that the suffering will one day end. And if God so chooses that it should even remain until death, it will at least end there. And in heaven, there will be no more sorrow or pain. Meanwhile, they can remain hopeful, trusting, and hoping in a loving and a merciful God who is working in their lives in loving and merciful ways, even if that includes suffering. That's why there's hope. The end of Romans 8.28 says that God is working all things according to His purpose. And there in the context, Paul tells us what he means. It means Christ-likeness. That we would be conformed to the image of His Son. So that Christ would be exalted before all the earth and that we who are God's chosen ones might become Christ's brothers and sisters and therefore the children of God. God is therefore in the process of perfecting us in the image of Christ. And this will inevitably, at times, involve suffering and loss. But in the life of the believer, we understand these to be tools of God's love and His mercy. I don't pretend that knowing all this makes loss or suffering an easy thing to deal with. No. You can be assured that if the Scriptures say that God's mercies are new every morning, then each day will be a new struggle. Because each day God promises to offer new mercy. In order to sustain hope, you will have to continually remind yourselves of these great truths. You will have to call to mind the Scriptures that tell you about the character of God and trust that this God, that His characters shows that His purposes in your life, even in the suffering and loss, is, is good, that they are good purposes. And you will have to hope in this good God and His good purposes resting in Him, saying, as the prophet does, as the poet does, 
in verse 24 of chapter 3, that the Lord is my portion. He Himself, when all else gives way, He Himself is your portion. You will have to remind yourselves that His mercies never come to an end. Tomorrow, when you get out of bed, you will need to remind yourself. Or when you feel as though the suffering is endless, remember that for a time, you are in a long night of darkness. It may seem long, but morning is sure to come. It will certainly come because God promises that it will. Trust Him. Join me as we pray. Almighty God, You are a good God, loving and merciful and faithful. And we flee to You for hope because there is nothing else. There is no one else to whom we can flee. When life is good or when it is hard, we flee to You. Help us to trust You. Oh God, I pray for the unbeliever, for one who does not trust You, who does not embrace Christ, who has rejected Christ and has lost all hope. God, I pray that You would draw them to Yourself, that they would see and embrace Your mercy for what it is, for their sin. And God, they would see the hope that is therefore also for their suffering. And God, for the believer who is suffering, encourage them, build them up, strengthen them, I pray. Help them to look to you and to trust you. Thank you for your promises to us. Thank you that you are loving and good. We pray these things in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.